Andrew uh, couldn't be here this morning, so you get me. My name's Eric, by the way, if you don't know me. Um, if you could keep uh, Thaddeus and the packs in your prayers, um, that would be good. He's, he's been doing really well. Um, he's having a little bit of a rough time. I think he went to the hospital um, yesterday or Friday. And um, so if we could keep them in our prayers. In fact, let's uh, pray for them right now. Heavenly Father, God of mercy, God of grace, I pray that you would uh, be with the packs right now, that you would um, touch Thaddeus's body, that you would um, give him strength, that if there's any infection because of his compromised immune system, that you would remove that and that you would strengthen him again, that you would give Andrew and Tanya and the kids peace and comfort, make them aware of your presence this morning, Lord, and help them in this difficult time to rejoice in you, to trust that Thaddeus and their family um, are in your gracious hands. We're grateful that you are the sovereign God of the universe, that nothing is outside of your gaze and your power and your love and mercy. And uh, so we just trust the packs to you this morning. And we lift up our congregation to you. Um, I, I know it's been a challenging time for us, Lord, and you know that too. Um, so I pray for that we would have that same sense of your presence, that you would draw us by your Holy Spirit into your presence this morning, that we would experience that um, as we fellowship together, as we worship in song, and as we look at your word, that you would make your presence known um, and that you would transform us into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be changed and that change would be evident and it would bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, if you, um, we're going to be in John chapter 9. Um, if you don't have one, I think we have some out on the table over here. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're welcome to take one, take it home with you. That's what they're there for. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 9, uh, just in the first few verses. Um, a little context. In John chapter 8, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. In chapter 9, 
of John's gospel, we see what happens when that light shines. Some are made to see, and others who think they can see turn away. They're blinded, as it were, by that same light. In fact, it says in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. It will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Before I read uh, John 9, 1 through 3, let's, we'll, we'll pray together again for the word. Um, but I want to focus on those three verses this morning. It addresses an issue that um, all of us have to deal with from time to time and uh, may be appropriate now in the life of uh, our church and our pastor's family, um, the issue of suffering. So let's, let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, you promise that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purposes you have for it. I pray that this morning that you would work through your word to accomplish your purposes according to your plan and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so let's read John 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It says in verse 1 that the man was blind from birth. How, uh, at this point, Jesus and his disciples knew this, that this passage doesn't tell us. Uh, but the fact is later confirmed by the man's parents in verse 20. The disciples... Seeing this, assume, like most Palestinian Jews of their day, that there's this direct correlation between sin and suffering. And so they raise the question of cause. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, their query is not without context, because uh, you can see in some Old Testament passages this link between um, the sins of the parents and um, suffering. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. However, you can also find in the Old Testament passages that speak the opposite, like Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. 
The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Now, some, some rabbis even argued that a baby in its mother's womb could sin, while others, of course, argued against it. It was a, it was a pretty hotly debated theological issue of that day, not unlike seminary students uh, debating mode of baptism or um, are the sign gifts for today. In asking the question, the disciples wanted Jesus to weigh in on this debate. But Jesus, instead of addressing cause or assigning blame, focuses on the purpose of the man's blindness. He says that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the Jews, like Job's friends, if you remember Job, held that all suffering in this life is punishment from God for some specific sin. In one sense, it's right to say that suffering is a result of sin. I mean, all human suffering is tied to our sin and rebellion in Adam. We live in a broken world, right? Sin entered the world and death and stuff's broken. That's what we call the doctrine of original sin. And there are examples in both the Old and New Testament where a specific illness or experience of suffering is a direct consequence of a specific sin. In 2 Samuel 12, the son David conceived with Bathsheba was taken from him by God because of his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and his adultery with her. Jesus seems to indicate in John chapter 5, verse 14, that the man he healed had been an invalid as a result of sin. He says to him, see, you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And in a passage that we refer to um, usually on Sundays we take communion, which is every Sunday, but occasionally we read this passage as we set up the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul even makes such a connection. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says in verse 30, That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So while I don't want to completely dismiss the idea that there's this link between sin and suffering. To say that all suffering is a direct result of some specific sin is simply not supported by Scripture. The book of Job teaches us that. 
And for us to look on the suffering of others and and try to diagnose the cause due to this sin or that is it's foolish and not helpful. I mean, our, our understanding, as smart as we think we are, our understanding is limited, very limited. We can't even begin to look at a person's heart and judge such matters. But there's something that we can do in response. We can look at what is going on in our lives, at the suffering in our lives, to see how God might be glorified in our suffering. I mean, that's ultimately the purpose of suffering in our lives. As Jesus said, that the works of God might be displayed in us. Now, before we get into some of the specifics concerning suffering and its purpose, it's critical that we put this entire subject in its proper context, the context of God's sovereign will. It's something that I, something that I talk about a lot. I think Andrew even mentioned it um, last couple weeks ago. God either has authority over the entire universe or He doesn't. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus tells His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, in him we were also chosen, having, predestined, having been predestined according, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And again in Philippians 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I don't want to leave out Romans 8.28. We have the assurance that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. You see, our suffering... Our suffering is not some cosmic accident. God didn't look away for a second and, you know, say, oops, my bad. Nothing is outside of God's view and outside His power and grace and love. We can take heart that even though we may not ever be able to discern the purpose of suffering in our lives at the time or ever, the God who loves us and works out all things 
for our good has a purpose for it. I mean, I'm having a little difficulty with this just because I, you know, I'm thinking of the packs, but I know many of us are struggling now, and it's important for us to have this perspective. So great, God's got us. Suffering is not random. He has a purpose for it. So what are those purposes? Well, there might be many, but let's look at a few. For one, suffering humbles us. It causes us to rely on God's power more than on our own strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of receiving a thorn in the flesh. He talks about it, uh, that its purpose is to keep him from being conceited concerning um, the unspeakably wonderful things that God has allowed him to see. I mean, think about... Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about Saul, the man Saul, the, the hunter and murderer of Christians. God miraculously saves him and give, has given him gospel, the gospel to preach to the Gentiles. Paul has received much mercy and grace, and God gives him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. It wasn't a consequence of sin. It was given to keep him humble, to keep him from thinking too much of himself. Because it's God's grace in his life. It had nothing to do with Paul. Now, we, don't, we aren't told specifically what it is, but the effect for Paul was in 1 Corinthians 12 was torment. Literally in the Greek, that word means to strike with a fist or to beat. And that verb tense in the Greek suggests that whatever it was, he dealt with it on an ongoing basis. It wasn't... Uh, like a one-time chastisement. This was a thorn in his flesh that remained. Paul even prayed that the suffering would be removed. But God didn't remove Paul's thorn in the flesh. Instead, this is how he answered Paul's request. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Through Paul's suffering, through his weakness, God could display his power. More than that, God's power, it says, was perfected 
in Paul's weakness. Now, in some Christian circles today, there's this belief that it's God's will that if you're a Christian, you should be happy and healthy, and that if that healing and um, financial gain in your life doesn't occur in answer to prayer, it's because you lack faith. You have weak faith. Well, that kind of thinking certainly goes against Paul's experience that we just talked about in 2 Corinthians. We know that Paul had great faith. But his prayer that the thorn be removed was not answered. It was answered, but the thorn wasn't taken away. You know, when we're strong, we feel like we're strong and we think we have everything under control, we, we tend to overlook or even take credit for God's power and His working in our lives. But when the strength of our own flesh fails, any power in our lives is clearly seen to be God's. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, again, verses 9 and 10, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm going to read that one more time, and I want, you to no I want you to notice something here. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You notice something amazing there? God's power didn't replace Paul's weakness or overcome it. Instead, God's power came to its full strength in it. It, it seems contradictory, but we can actually rejoice in our suffering because that is when we rely the least on our own strength and the most on God's strength. That's when God's strength is most powerfully displayed or made perfect, Paul says, in us. Now, another purpose for suffering in our lives is discipline. Not discipline in the sense of being punished for sin. Jesus took the punishment for our sins, past, present, and future, on the cross. But the sense of discipline in terms of training. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11 says, Endure hardship as discipline. 
God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes... Actually, I don't hear this term a lot in Seattle, but uh, when I think of this kind of discipline, sometimes you hear it referred to as going to the woodshed. It's not fun when it happens, but we can rejoice in that kind of suffering as well because as the author of Hebrews says, God's treating us as sons. He uses it in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus, to make us mature and complete. We're promised in Philippians 1.6 that He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's discipline in our lives through suffering and through hardship is assurance that we are truly His children. And that He'll complete the work that He started in us. Like the pains of childbirth, it's a productive pain. It's suffering that produces the holiness of God in our lives. Lastly, and I would say ultimately, God allows suffering in our lives to demonstrate, to show forth His glory and His grace. Sometimes it comes through patient endurance, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. Or sometimes it comes through the faithfulness of believers in the face of persecution, as in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. And sometimes glory is displayed through a miraculous healing, like in the John 9, first three verses that we read. With the man born blind. Or in John 11, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Our suffering is an opportunity for God's grace. 
if it's something that he allows to keep us humble, not relying on our own strength, but fully on his, that's the sufficiency of his grace. If our suffering is discipline for sin, then it becomes an occasion for repentance. And again, his grace as he restores us to fellowship with him. As I said earlier, oftentimes we are not going to be able to discern God's purpose in our suffering. But suffering is always an opportunity for us to die to ourselves and find our true satisfaction in the sufficiency of Christ. God doesn't allow anything in our lives that is not able to glorify Him by drawing us into deeper intimacy with Him and revealing His glory. When we trust in God's goodness, in our lives, His sovereignty over our lives, we are able to find the comfort in God Himself and not in our circumstances. And when we can do that, that is an occasion, that's a First Thessalonians 5 occasion where we can give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I'm not saying that we should deny or avoid the reality of our suffering. Instead, we can embrace it with the assurance that God will use it to further His purposes in and through us. Some lessons are only learned through suffering. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those. Um, I'm one of those difficult students. I'm one of those. Two by four to the head to get my attention, kind of people. So many of my lessons have been learned through suffering, but the result is a closer walk with God that comes as a result from those tests. And we can help each other with the truths that we learn in those times. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. My prayer for us this morning, for all of us, and specifically for those of us who are dealing right now with suffering, that you'd be able to identify with that blind man in John chapter 9, that you would reflect on the ways that God might display His works in you in the midst of your suffering that you would commit yourselves to your faithful creator.
creator and continue to do good. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, not just over the universe, but you are sovereign over the details, the minutiae of our lives. That nothing is unimportant to you. That nothing is outside of your care or your purpose for each one of us. I pray this morning that as we look at the suffering in our own lives, that we would throw ourselves on your grace and mercy, that you would give us the peace of knowing that you've got us. And that whatever is going on in our lives, you are using for good according to your plan and purpose to make us more like Jesus and ultimately to bring you all the glory and honor that is due your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.